Well, it's good to be together, and um, we have banners up here that tell us that we're in a series right now called Unsung Heroes. Almost every summer, we try and spend time studying different characters in the Bible. We found that to be a good way with people on vacation and coming in and out. So even if you miss some of these different Sundays, you can still listen online or do podcasts. Uh, when I was gone, Trish and I were gone, we were able to listen each Sunday to the messages, and we've really appreciated what Brian Wilmarth and Lee and also Pastor Steve have shared, and looking forward to Brian Schwerberg preaching in a couple weeks. But in this series, we've been looking at these different characters. You can see some of the names even if you haven't been here. Ananias, Hosea, Jonathan, Nathan, Job last week, this week Barnabas, then Abigail and Stephen. That's what we've been looking at this summer. And so we see different qualities, different characteristics, attitudes that we can adopt in our own lives. An unsung hero just simply means someone who maybe is a hero, but nobody really sings about them. No one really praises them or exalts them. In the world's eyes, maybe they're not given as much uh, notice as maybe celebrities or other kinds of things. And we've paid a lot of attention in our culture to superpowers and things like that that we put next to our heroes. But what we're learning in this series is that God wants to change our definition of hero. He wants us to really see that sometimes the really heroic people in his eyes aren't going to be sung about much on this earth, but they can be a tremendous encouragement to us. And today we're going to look at the character of Barnabas, and if you're following along in the notes, I hope you'll see that in God's eyes, Barnabas is a hero who encourages others. In God's eyes, maybe not the world's eyes, but in God's eyes, Barnabas is a hero who encourages others. We've kind of put the sentence for each message like this here on the screen. A hero is a person who by faith answers God's call to do something. And we've seen some of the different ways. Today we're going to look at how in God's eyes, a hero is a person who by faith answers God's call to encourage others. And I don't know how important you feel like encouraging other people is. I think sometimes there's a myth that Christians, especially if they're super Christians, don't need encouragement. My experience has been the exact opposite, is that everybody needs encouragement, even people that have walked with Jesus for a long time. And I don't know how you find yourself this morning. I don't know when you walk in here uh, if you know, you find yourself dragging. Maybe it's going well for you. I wonder if this uh, picture here on the screen would describe where some of you are. You know, maybe with a fuel gauge, you know, on the dashboard of your life, you know, you're, you're bumping E. Maybe it's challenging. Encouragement, if you listen to the word, what's the root word in encouragement, friends? Courage. Now, why is courage so important? Because it takes courage to live the Christian life. It takes courage to follow Jesus. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but not everybody's going to congratulate you if you decide to follow Jesus. Not everybody's amped about that. Have you noticed that? And so to, to run a long race with Jesus, because it is a long race, it's going to take courage. And so... Someone has said in the dictionary definition says, encouragement is to inspire a person to continue on a chosen course. To continue. Sometimes just continuing is a big deal. 
And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And I don't know, just again, a little background here. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, so you can just turn to your neighbor and say, I've heard this before, I hope you enjoy it. Is <laughs> when I was a young person, when I was a teenager even, I, I think the only way you could say my life before Christ is that I was pretty much discouraging to have around. It's not that I never encouraged, but even when I encouraged, it was to get something back. It was to get people to like me so that I could further myself. And so anyway, my family will tell you, my sister was in the first service, I've got family here in this service, they'll testify that before Christ, I could be very, very discouraging. I, I, I had a foul mouth, I would swear at people, my friends knew that I was going to say some kind of off-color swearing thing at them, and so they would actually think about what they could say back to me, and then they would high-five each other, felt like they, you know, because they just knew that I was going to say something to cut them down. And then I met Christ. Now, what led me to know Christ, in part, was the fact that the more I saw that stuff coming out of my mouth, the more I saw how discouraging I was to be around, that was empirical evidence to me that I was a sinner. I didn't need anybody to tell me I was a sinner. I knew I was. And I also knew that I needed a Savior. And so that brought me to Jesus Christ, who I found to be an incredible Savior. And he offered the gift of life with him, that if I would turn from going my own way and trying to build my whole empire around myself and just trust him and acknowledge that I had sinned against him and trust him, that he would give me not only forgiveness and new life, but his Holy Spirit can now live in me. Fast forward to when I was about 20 years old. I'm with my dad for lunch, and he goes, Jeff, what do you think is your spiritual gifts? What, do you think your, what spiritual gifts do you think God gave you when his Holy Spirit came in your life? And I said, I have no idea. I really don't. And as he was eating, he said, uh, I know of at least one gift I think he's given you. No one had ever talked to me like this before. He said, I think God's given you the gift of encouragement. So have you ever noticed sometimes when you talk to somebody that they come back to you later and say, that, really, that helped me. Thank you. Stuff like that. Pay attention to that. So I remember thinking to myself, I got a lot to learn. So if I wrote an, a note to somebody and I went to mail it, I'd go, Lord, I don't know if this note will help anybody, but even if my note doesn't help, would you help them? And if you want to use this note, great. If not, just please teach me how to encourage people. So then I stumbled on to Barnabas in the New Testament. You can find him mostly in the letter to, called Acts, and that's where we're going to camp out today. And as I began to study Barnabas, he's just become a hero for me. Not only because of the fact he encouraged others, but the way he encouraged others. And I'm hoping today that as we talk about the power of encouragement, that you will find yourself not only being encouraged by Barnabas' life, but you'll picture yourself saying, I could be a Barnabas. I could be like Barnabas right where I am. And that God will show you ways. And I'm going to give you a way to apply this message at the end of the message before we take communion. So that's where we're headed. And I want to look at four snapshots of Barnabas' life. I could give you more because there are more, but I just really want to focus on four. And then we'll think about how we can apply this to our life. So would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, help me help people. Help us help people. And I pray that we would be able to walk away from here today and have a greater idea of what you want us to do with the time we spend here on earth. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to invite you to turn to Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 4, 
because this is one of those Sundays where we're actually going to be turning pages. I'd love for you to follow along. So even if you didn't bring a Bible, we have black ones hopefully in the seat rack nearby you, in front of you there. If you pull it out, I'm told Acts 4 is on page 760, and that'll get you turned there in express fashion. So page 760 in the black Bibles, and if you'll turn to Acts, it's about three-fourths of the way back if you're getting used to your Bibles, okay? Now here's what I hope you'll see, is what I'm going to do is I'm going to just walk through Acts 4, Acts 9, Acts 11, Acts 15, and out to the right there where it says four snapshots from Barnabas' life, here's what, I li- here's what I have in my notes. That if you want to write, you can. From Acts 12.25 to Acts 15.35. From Acts 12.25 to Acts 15.35, there's a whole bunch more snapshots about Barnabas. And you can read those on your own. I think you'll be amazed at some of the things he does with his life just the way he tries to obey the Lord. But we're going to look at Acts 4, Acts 9, Acts 11, and Acts 15 and see what we can learn from those snapshots. So you ready? For Acts 4, 36 and 37, here's what I hope you'll see if you're following along. In this first snapshot, Barnabas sells a field to help those in need. Barnabas sells a field to help those in need. Now this is an interesting thing, so... Uh, Let me read it, and um, again, um, I'll do it with some background music. Here we go. Acts 4. That's happened to me. There's plenty of grace for that. Acts 4. Here we go. 36 and 37. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called what, friends? Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, what's going on there? If you go back to verse 32, it tells us that in the early church there, something powerful was happening with these people, just ordinary people that had met the Lord. All the believers were one in heart and mind. God was knitting them together in a way that wasn't just human. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They stopped saying mine, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Isn't that powerful? What do you think the watching world thought? For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And this guy named Joseph who the apostles called Barnabas, sold a field that he had, took the profits from it, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. What's that mean? He just basically said, you're the leaders of the church. I trust you. You got the bigger picture. Would you please distribute this to places and to people where it's most needed that they'll be lifted up? No strings. I put it, I trust it to you. Interesting thing. Now, here's what I want you to notice. If you're following along in the notes, do you see that first gray box? What I want you to notice is Barnabas isn't his real name. Let's read it together. Joseph was a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. In other words, when they looked at him, they said, look, I know your mom and dad named you Joseph, but you're Barney. (laughs) I mean, when I think of you, when I see you, I think encourager. Jesus can change your name. When he gets a hold of your life, his work in your life 
starts to be how people think of you. They just go, man, when Jesus is working in Joseph, he's not just Joseph, he's encourager. Powerful. And so what he did is he sold a field. So some of us going, I'm out. I don't have that kind of stuff. Some of you say, I do. That's not the issue. The issue is not do you have a lot or do you have a little. It's not, friends. It's how you look at whatever you have. And here's what he did. He asked this question if you're following along. Who can I share some of my resources with? Who can I share some of my resources with? Surely you've met someone who may not have a lot in the world's eyes, but God has gotten a hold of them, so they look at all their possessions differently now. They look at all the resources that they've been entrusted with, and they begin to say, is there someone that I could loan that to for a time? Is there someone that I might actually sell it and then just give the proceeds? God, what do you want me to do? Show me. Whatever's in my hand, show me how to look at it differently rather than just say, mine, mine, more. And he just, he just began to say, I thought this field was, I, honest, I, could, be, I could be freed up of that. I'm just going to give because I see people that might be able to benefit from that, and that that's God. God's showing me that. And friends, again, no matter what you have, if you give it, I, I'll tell you what, there's some precious, precious things happening that I don't even know about because people are looking at their resources differently in this church family and beyond. Second snapshot, are you ready? It's in Acts 9, so you want to turn the pages over there? Acts 9. And the uh, first week of this series, Pastor Steve talked about the first part of Acts 9. And a guy named Saul's conversion, Saul had been persecuting the church, and a guy named Ananias gets a call from God to go and talk to Saul, and, and uh, they're in Damascus, and Saul eventually becomes Paul later. But notice, if you're following along, that in Acts 9 here, the second snapshot of Barnabas is that Barnabas brings Saul to the apostles and vouches for him. He brings Saul to the apostles and vouches for him. Let me just stop and say something here. We're going to see Saul's name again, but later, especially by chapter 13, he's no longer called Saul, he's called Paul. Why is that? Saul is his Jewish name. That's the one that he was given when he was a kid. But God had called him to work with the Gentiles. Do we all remember from the Galatians series what a Gentile is? It's anyone who's not? That's right. How many of us are Gentiles? Just about all of us. Here's the deal. The, the gospel started spreading to people beyond just the Jewish people. Jesus was a Jewish person. The Messiah came first to the Jews. Then it went beyond, thank heavens, to people that weren't just Jewish. And so Paul gets the call to reach out to the Gentiles there on the Damascus Road. So later in his life, as he begins to work with the Gentile people, he uses his Greek name, Paul. Now, when I, uh, my middle name is Paul. So over the years, I've told people, before I was a Christian, my name was Jeffrey Saul Nelson. <laughs> After I became a Christian, it became Jeffrey Paul Nelson. Now, that's not true, but it helps me remember Saul becomes Paul. And that's the idea here, okay? So, I mean, my name is always Jeffrey Paul is what I'm trying to say. Okay, so, so look at this with me. Acts chapter 9. Are you ready? Look at verse 26. So Saul, remember, he was a persecutor of the church. He'd actually in prison, beaten, even seen Stephen killed. We're going to look at that two weeks from now. But here it is, verse 26. So when Saul came to Jerusalem, remember he'd been changed in Damascus. Now later, when he comes to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. I bet they were. 
Can you imagine? Hey, could I join your group? Uh, I think, didn't you try and kill people? Like, are, is this a trick? And it says, not, uh, not believing that he really was a disciple. In other words, I don't know if you really are the real deal. And I love these next two words. I wonder if they're not going to help somebody this week. But Barnabas. See, that's how it was. But Barnabas was being prompted by God. Took him and brought him to the apostles. The apostles were the leaders of the church. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus, after he came to Christ, he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with him and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Why was Saul able to move about and speak freely in Jerusalem when before he couldn't even get in to the group? All because a guy named Barnabas was listening closely and weighing out the evidence, and he knew that something had happened. So he said, come on, Saul. I know these guys. Let me tell you, listen to his story. Hear what he's been doing that was pretty risky in Jesus' name. I think he's the real deal. I think God did it. Let's welcome him. Now, if you're following along, here's kind of the attitude Barnabas had. Who is having a hard time fitting in that I can welcome? Who is having a hard time fitting in that I can welcome? Some of you know what this is like in a school or an office place or a family or a church. One of my greatest fears is that someone will walk into this church building or drive on our campus, they'll spend time here, and they'll leave, and no one will welcome them. That would be a tragedy. And sometimes I'm sure in our weakness, in our blindness, sometimes we still fail that way. But let's not let that happen easily. Who is it? I'm not talking about people that they're so selfish and so all about me getting attention people. Those people will probably be impossible to ever make, always fit in. But I'm talking about just normal people that are saying, I'd like to find out more about your church family. I'd like to actually be part of it. Is, is that possible? I pray that we'll say, welcome. I pray. You know, I know some of you, it's stretching because you're more shy or you don't feel like you're that good with people that whenever we stand and say, greet one another, you're going, oh man. Okay, but here's the deal. You could look at someone. You could look at someone today if God prompts you and you could welcome them in such a way that would last a long time. You could be a Barnabas. Wherever you are, you might be the one to initiate and say, welcome. Are you new here? Can we can I help you? Oh, you've been coming a couple years? That's okay. We haven't had a chance to meet. Welcome. But see, that's spirit. See? Third snapshot. Acts 11. So if you want to turn there, Acts 11. 22-26. And here we see another snapshot of Barnabas. And here we see how Barnabas sees God working in Antioch and he disciples them. He sees God working in Antioch. Now we learned this a little while ago, but Antioch is up north of Jerusalem, quite a, quite a distance. And so we're going to see how the message of Christ got up there, starting in verse 19. But I want you to see how Barnabas gets involved. Verse 19, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution, who started the persecution? Saul, that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, 
Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. So a long period of time eventually transpires, things unfold. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Where was Barnabas from, friends? Cyprus, right? Went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Evidently, they didn't know any better that you weren't supposed to just tell Jewish people. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. How do you know the Lord's hand's with you sometimes? People turn to the Lord, or they turn back to the Lord. God's doing that. Now, let's read verse 22, because here's Barnabas. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, down south, and they sent one of the apostles to Antioch. Is that what your Bible says? No, they sent Barnabas. They were thinking, who do we send? Well, he, he probably knows some of those people from Cyprus. Barnabas has a heart for people besides just in our church. Huh, let's send Barnabas. And when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, some of your translations say, and he saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. In other words, he let the Holy Spirit influence and direct his paths. He trusted God and kept growing in his trust. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And so if you're following along, here's what happened. Barnabas asked this question, who is new in the faith that I can cheer on and challenge. I mean, these people here in Antioch, they're new. They, they're just brand new baby Christians. They don't have any idea how to live the Christian life every day, exactly where they are, at work, school, different things like that. How can we help them? Who's new in the faith that we can go? It's so great that you've trusted in Christ now. We're learning too. We'll try and share with you some of the things God's teaching us in the Bible, but also the practical things of how that plays out. And when he got started doing that, he goes, God is doing something bigger than anything I can do by myself. And he went and found Saul. Why? Because Saul had a ministry to the Gentiles. He, he started connecting people. And he goes, these people need Saul. They need to meet Saul and what God's doing in his life. And how somehow as they rub shoulders, it's going to help. How encouraging do you think it was that seven or eight years after this thing happened where he first introduced him to the apostles, that Barnabas goes and looks for Saul again and says, come on, let's team up. Let's do that. I don't think Saul ever forgot Barnabas in his life. You saw something in me before other people did. You helped me get started. You invited me. You included me. But also, he said to these new people that were new in the faith, friends, we don't want people to stay baby Christians, do we? I don't want to stay a baby Christian. I'm so thankful for the Barnabases that have come along in our lives and just said, if you're willing, I'm learning too. I'll learn right alongside of you. Taught him for a year. What an investment. Oh, my goodness. Snapshot number four, chapter 15. If you're willing to turn to there, verses 36 through 40. This is a little bit, this is a little bit, um, well, it's messy, is what I'm trying to say. Has anybody else noticed the Christian life's messy? While you're turning there, can I ask you a question? Do you care if other people outside our church know Jesus? Does it bother you that some people have never had an opportunity 
to meet Jesus or hear about him from someone they trust? Barnabas wanted everyone in the church to remember it's not us for no more. Jesus has a heart that keeps reaching out to people. Show me how to keep getting a bigger heart for people that aren't yet in the body of Christ or that may be new. I love that. May we have the same spirit. Oh, Jerry Hills, let us always care about people beyond our walls. Acts 15. Here's the messy part. He stands by John Mark, though Paul disagrees. He stands by John Mark, though Paul disagrees, if you're following along in the notes. Now let me read this uncomfortable passage. I told you that in Acts 12, 13, 14, and 15, that they had been doing other things. Barnabas had other snapshots, but now we come to verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. You can read about that in Acts 13. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. Disagreements are difficult. And Barnabas and Paul have a big disagreement over whether or not John Mark should help them in the ministry this time. He was a quitter. He had stopped working with them before and he had left them, abandoned them, forsaken them when they were working when it got really tough. And so Paul says, I don't think that'd be a good idea. He failed us last time. He's going to probably fail us again. And Barnabas says, you know, I know you're right about that first part. He did fail us. But I've been talking to Mark and I think he realizes how much he failed. He realizes the damage of that. And I think he's learning from his failure. And I think he's humbly... He's humbly trying to discern whether God wants to use him again. And I think we should give him another chance. Paul said, I don't think so. Now here's what's amazing. I don't think Barnabas, maybe this came out, but I, Barnabas could have said, hey, do you remember after you'd like been killing people how I said to the apostles that I thought they should give you another chance? I don't think he said that. And we don't know who's right here. We know that they both stayed involved in ministry and they both, I think, stayed sweet-spirited. I think it was a ding, but I think they kept going. But here's what I know. Later, have you ever read the Gospels? Do you remember the second Gospel? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know why we have the second Gospel? John Mark. John Mark eventually would also serve with Peter the big fisherman. And Peter would say in 1 Peter 5.13 how much Mark meant to him. We believe that Mark is Peter's gospel. Mark worked with him. But here's the deal. Look at 2 Timothy 4.11. Late in Paul's life, look at what he writes to his younger associate, Timothy. Get Mark. He's in prison, Paul is. He says, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Paul changed his mind. Because Barnabas gave John Mark a second chance, he became helpful to Peter, 
He became helpful to Paul. He was a blessing to the body of Christ. This is always difficult to talk about, but some of you here, maybe you've failed big time, and you know it. And you're trying to figure out, you know, I've tried to make amends, I've tried to be humble, I've tried to be teachable, but I guess I just have to wait till heaven now. God can't use me anymore. Don't be so sure. He may still have plans for you in ways that you've never thought about. And Barnabas wants to come and say, I'll walk with you, and I think God still has ministry for you. Trisha and I have some dear friends, and they were telling us, again, not part of this church, but they were telling us about a family member who really made some terrible decisions, wrecked some relationships and did some stuff, created real damage, and they're hurting real bad. But they realize, and they're showing godly repentance, and they're just, but now they wonder, can God ever use me again after that big of a failure? So we just found ourselves trying to text and email and just stay in touch and go, God's not done with you. I don't know where all this is going, but he can use you again. You'll stay humble, teachable, learn from this failure. It doesn't have to be final. It doesn't have to be fatal. God can still do something. So friends, isn't that amazing? These snapshots. He sold a field. He helps welcome Saul. He helps disciple these people in Antioch. And he stands by John Mark, who is a failure. And if you're following along, you know someone, he, here's the question he asks, who has failed and needs another chance? Maybe there's someone today that God's going to lead you to encourage in some way that's failed and, and they know it and they need another chance. I don't know what that'll look like. I don't necessarily mean that maybe they'd be restored to full responsibility. Sometimes. I'm just saying this. Oh my gosh, is that beautiful. Now there's two more things I want you to see about encouragement before I talk about how we practice it. You know, you guys give me a great privilege a set-aside time to study the Word of God. And I pray that when I do that, it can somehow benefit you and not just be great time for Jeff to study. When I was looking at Barnabas this week, I was so grabbed by the spirit in which he encouraged, the motivation for which he encouraged. Can I just be honest? Sometimes I encourage people to get encouragement back. And there's not necessarily anything devious or terrible wrong with that, but mature encouragement eventually goes... Look, it's not just about me getting attention or strokes. And Barnabas did not do this to get in the New Testament. I don't think he said, okay, if I sell a field, I'll get an Acts 4. <laughs> I don't think he did that. I think he was just going, Jesus, is that what you want me to do? Okay, I'll do that. But here's what I want you to see. Encouragers, if you're looking at more on encouragement, encouragers elevate and celebrate the ministry of others. Encouragers elevate and celebrate the ministry of others, what do I mean? In time, as Barnabas encouraged Saul who became Paul, their names when they first started ministering in the church went like this. Barnabas and Saul were here. Barnabas and Paul came here. But after a while, it began to change. Paul began to be lifted up by God to be used in mighty ways. He wrote half the New Testament. Amazing. And as that began to happen, it would be easy for Barnabas to go, like, that's a bummer. I was here before Paul. I, I even helped Paul get known by these people. And like now he's more important. I don't know if I like that. But we see no signs of that. Barnabas, when it began to be Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and his companions, doesn't even name Barnabas, as far as we can tell, he's okay with that. 
like John the Baptist. He must increase, I must decrease. It's okay. If God wants to use them, all that matters is that Jesus Christ is getting lifted up. I'm okay with that. And friends, sometimes the reason why we don't encourage other people is either envy, jealousy, or insecurity that basically says, hey, if I don't get as much recognition as somebody, I'm not doing it. Barnabas wasn't like that. Oh, I need to learn from him. Encouragers lead us to trust, to fully trust and obey Jesus is the second one. Encouragers, and this is what's different than just worldly encouragement, friends. Godly encouragement will always point us towards Jesus. It may not mention Jesus' name, but it'll help us trust Jesus more and obey him more. Do you remember in Acts eleven twenty three when he was at Antioch? And he saw how God was working in their lives. He goes, this is good. This is great that God started his work in your life. Now, here's what I want to ask you to do. This is my challenge too. I encourage you to remain true to the Lord with all your hearts. This is a long race. And there'll be times to go, you know, I don't know if I want to give him all my heart in this next chapter. I mean, I did last chapter. That's enough for now. We may just go, you know, I don't know. I, I, my friends tell me I'm crazy when I act all out for Jesus. So maybe I just need to do it partly. Barnabas goes, no, 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 no. I know that everything in this world says that what you acquire, the one who wins, dies with the most toys wins, all these different things. No, 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 no. When the dust settles someday, all that's going to matter is what you did with Jesus. Get to know him. Trust him. Obey him. You will never regret it that day. Oh, man, how many of us just need someone to say, it's about Jesus, and you are not crazy for trusting him. You are not crazy for obeying him when other people mock you, because it'll be worth it all. Don't quit. Keep going. Keep trusting him and obeying him. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. And so, how do we practice this? Well, if you turn over the back notes, here's what really hit me. And I put this here because I know we couldn't go into detail. But what I've learned this week is that Barnabas had such a clear understanding of God's plan of encouragement that as he adjusted his life to be part of that, he gives us a model. And if we can understand God's plan of encouragement, then we can get involved in specific ways. So here, real quick, let me just show you. Did you know that our God is an encouraging God? When you read the scriptures, it talks about how God says, be strong, be courageous, don't quit. I will help you. I give you eternal encouragement. But we have an enemy, the devil, who seeks to discourage us. The Bible says is that he shoots fiery arrows, fiery darts at us. What are those fiery darts? I don't know all of them, but I know one of the most powerful ones. Discouragement. And he is shooting those your way across the tick of your mind, whispers in your head. You'll hear times like, oh, come on. He's, he doesn't really love you. It's not worth it. Come on, are you crazy? You're not a good Christian. All that kind of stuff. He'll do anything he can to discourage you. And if you haven't experienced that, just live a little longer. Jesus, God's son, became human to save and encourage us. The cross is unbelievably encouraging. The Holy Spirit encourages and gives the gift of encouragement. On the night before Jesus died, he said, I'm going to send you another helper, parakaleo, paraclete, 
which is the same root where we get for a word encourage. He's going to come alongside of you and live in you and encourage you to help run the race. He'll help you. He's going to live inside of you. God gave us the Bible to encourage us. Jesus wants his church to be encouraged and built up. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How does he build his church? God often encourages people through other people. Barnabas understood this. How does encouragement get delivered? Sometimes directly from the Holy Spirit, but oftentimes through a human vessel. And I wonder if you're sitting here today and you wonder if he can use you. He can. You can be a Barnabas. How? Well, if you look there, I've listed practical ways to encourage this week. The first one, send a card, text, note, or email. There's other ones like meal for co- a meat for coffee, a meal or a dessert I put out to the side, a walk or a drive. And some of you, again, you've, you've seen this. You don't have to spend a lot of money. Craig and Darcy have been in the services, and I talked to Craig a few months ago. I realized that I haven't done a very good job of, of and praying for and encouraging our missionaries. And so rather than beating myself up about that, I just thought, okay, God, what can I do? I can't do everything, but I can do something. So we went to the board one day in our staff meeting. We prayed for the different missionaries, and I said, why don't we each try and write a missionary an email, just tell them we're praying for them, thinking of them today. Not, you know, not be super crazy, but just tell them that. So I sent an email to Craig and Darcy. That was one of the people God seemed to put on my heart. And I just, Craig and I were talking. I had no, I guess I'd just become dull. I didn't realize that when you're in China and you're trying to lead people to Christ and no one seems to be interested, to get an email that says, thinking of you back here in the United States, thanks for serving God faithfully, keep going, don't quit, it's huge. I had no idea. I almost didn't do it because I didn't think it'd make a difference. And I'm not saying that it was everything they needed, but it was something. And that's such a lesson I got to keep learning. I don't know about you. So one of these ways it might be, so if you turn your notes back over, here's, here's, here's the challenge. Here's what I want to ask you to do. How can we be a Barnabas? I was thinking about this this week. In our three services, we have about 1,000 adults every Sunday. More children downstairs and in the hall here, but about a thousand adults. So if the thousand of us, if we were to each in the next seven days wake up and say, Lord, how can I encourage at least one person today? And we did that for seven days. That would be 7,000 encouraging actions that could happen just with our little church here in, our, in, our, in the big community. What would happen if you and I did that? So here's the question to close. Lord, Who and how can I encourage with you today? Who can I encourage with you today? One of the things Barnabas realized is God's already wanting to encourage someone. He just wants me to join him. Who and how? How would it look like for me? Now, some of you are going to go, well, I can't do it like Jeff. I can't do it like so-and-so. Please don't do it like we would. Do it like you would. Learn how to encourage the way God's made you. And it may be some of these different ideas in the back. But with that in mind... Would you please take out what was on your chair? Remember these pieces of paper when you first came in? I know some of you may not have them because we were running short, but I'm praying to God we might be able to redistribute so that everyone might have at least one. Is that going to work? Is everyone, are we able to rally like that? Now, I don't know if the one you had is smashed when you sat on it when you first came in, but if it's still something you can kind of, you know, flatten out, 
We specifically chose this simple kind of paper because we don't, we don't want it to be razz, razzle-dazzle. We just, it's just something simple. This envelope doesn't have a stamp on it, doesn't have an address on it. But we thought to ourselves, what if right where you are, if you were just to say, Lord, is there someone whose shoulders are sagging? Is there someone who I'm aware might just need just one sentence? We made them small so you wouldn't feel like you had to write a book report. Something huge, just one sentence. One sentence that said something like this. I mean, between services, I wrote a guy that almost no one in our church knows, but he's been a faithful part of our church for years. He's encouraged our staff. He's encouraged our family. This guy would not think of himself as a hero, but he is. So I wrote his name and I said, you're a hero in God's eyes because of the way you encourage others in these couple ways. I named those. I said, thank you. And I remember thinking to myself, that is helping me understand what a hero is better. So I'm not saying, if you write me, I'm going to get upset because I know I'm visible, I'm public. Who are some of the people in this church family or that you know right where you are that you might just write a note today, one sentence? It might be a family member, it might be a classmate, it might be a coworker, it might be someone in this church. But you can either hand it to them or mail it to them. I know you still have to, some of you say, I'm a procrastinator, I'm not sure I'll get it done. I'll just, I'll let you work that out with God, okay? But if he's leading you to do that, here's an idea. So as Michelle's playing, just bow for a moment and let's just ask God, who is it? Who and how might I encourage someone? What, what do you want me to maybe say to one person? While I was on break, I had several days where I just, it was kind of discouraging and you know, that stuff happens in your head, not necessarily everybody knows, you know. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, is what we're doing as a church family, is what I'm involved in, is it making any difference? And you know, I don't know how I got off and all that crazy thinking, but the Lord just said, look, stop worrying about the results. Give a cup of cold water in my name. Every time I prompt you, I'll take care of the results. Just be faithful. And I I thought, I can do that. And you can do that. We can't do everything, but we can do something. In Jesus' name. God, help us to be an encouraging church family, huh? 
So we're going to celebrate communion now, and if you didn't finish the note, you can do that later. Or, you know, again, that's just an idea. If that idea doesn't, like, you know, do it for you, there's other ways you can encourage. Just listen to the Lord and be a Barnabas. But now we're going to take communion. And you know what? I think this is a perfect thing to do after studying encouragement. Jesus decided to have his, I mean, the night before he was betrayed, would you put that in an encouraging or a discouraging night? Being betrayed by one of your close friends, right? But on the night he was betrayed, he was thinking of other people, not just himself. So he instituted communion. And he said, you know, I'm I'm going away, I'm going to go to the cross, but I want you to take this often after I'm with you. We're going to take it together someday in, in the kingdom. But every time you take this bread, every time you take this juice, I want you to remember me. Remember me. Proclaim my death on your behalf as enough until I come again. Now, why did he ask us to do that again and again and again? What does he know about us? He knew that we would get discouraged. He knew that the race with him is a long race and it has all kinds of twists and turns and we would need lots of reminders that we're not crazy, that he is for us, that he is ready to help us and he will lift us up. So let communion be a time where if you've failed, you turn back to him. If you are new, let him welcome you. If you have all kinds of questions, give them to him. But we, we do it this way at Cherry Hills. So we don't want anybody to feel left out. If you're new and you say, I don't know, is this going to get awkward? Just know if you've trusted Christ, when these trays are passed with these stacked cups with juice and bread, please take it. This is Jesus' invitation to you and all his people that follow him. If you've never done that, then here's just a simple thing. You could trust Jesus today. Is there anything keeping you from trusting him? You could begin. This could be the very first thing you do as a follower of Christ. And if you're not ready to do that, please don't feel arm twisted or pressured. Just let the tray pass. No one will look down on you. We are so glad you're here. But think about your relationship with Jesus because when the dust clears, friends, all that's going to matter is what you and I have done with Jesus Christ. So now they're going to bring trays forward and as they do, think about your relationship with him. Let's meditate on him. Let's remember him and let's be encouraged for the next lap with him.